Well, hey guys, welcome back to episode five of the podcast. Uh, If you haven't seen these already or listened to them, then you can go back and check out the first four. It's been quite a mixed bag of people, everything from uh, the lead singer of my favorite band to my best friend to producer Michael to professional streamer. And today we have a good friend of mine, Abingdon, and she is a badass female pilot. She's actually my flying instructor. I guess it can kind of be called that. I've only had one lesson with her because of the coronavirus thing. But she is and will be my flying instructor. And she is also the founder and owner of the Abingdon Co., which is the first female aviators watch company. Is that right? Yes, that's how we started. But now it's much more adventure activities, diving, um, motorsports, tactical fields, basically anything that you can get dirty, sweaty, and try and break things. Okay, well, there you go. So uh, you've already seen her. That's Abingdon. Uh, So yeah, you ready to get into this? Let's do it. Awesome. And just to let you guys know at home, uh, if you don't want to watch this on YouTube, you can actually listen to this podcast. It's available everywhere you can get podcasts. So if you just go into iTunes and type in Adam's Words Podcast or Spotify or anywhere else, you'll find it. So you don't have to sit and actually watch this on YouTube. You can plug in your headphones and listen to it while you're going about your day. I like to listen to podcasts while I'm driving, uh, but every now and again, I will just sit down and watch one of these. And when it's with somebody as beautiful as Abingdon, why not? So uh, yeah, thank you for, uh, for coming on. This is fun yeah definitely how are you i'm i am <laughs> i really want to get into an airplane again yeah, i haven't flown I in a minute so how's it affecting you like down. how because obviously you you deliver airplanes as well as other things correct yeah i deliver airplanes i teach people how to fly i um have flown for the airlines i've flown corporate um, basically I've done everything in aviation except for race at Reno air races and do competition aerobatics. I've done aerobatics. I just have never competed. So okay. to not be in an airplane for two months has been just like stabbed me in the chest because <laughs> I'm just dying over here. I'm sure. But, I'm sure. By the way, that is a lovely hat you're wearing there. <laughs> do you like that? Do you like <laughs> that? Do. Somebody... Somebody I know makes these. <laughs> wow, they must be really talented and, and exceptional human beings. Really talented. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just realized I'm covered in dog hair. That Since getting the dog, I've just been like, this is my life now, is just a constant battle with his dog hair. Yeah, Diesel's worth it. <laughs> oh, he is, he is, he's awesome. Um, so how, how do you race Reno air races? Like, how, how can you make that a thing? Well, um, I've looked into it, and oddly enough, um, we have an episode where, so you and Michael were the inspiration for my company starting a YouTube channel, and I'm going to just slightly tangent because our third episode is with a Reno Air Race pilot, Ah. so that's going to be airing next week because we just aired our second today. Um, So he kind of showed me everything I needed to know about how to get into Reno Air Racing. And uh, there's different types of air racing. So you've got Red Bull air races. uh, You've got Reno air races. Basically, you either have a timed course around pylons that you have to beat everybody else's time, or you're physically with flying with everybody else that you're competing against. And that's Reno. So it's a much more dangerous, um, more... I, I mean, I, I like the Red Bull Air Races as well, um, and uh, and they definitely know how to put on a show. Um, but Reno Air Races is way more dangerous. So you have to go to race school, 
Um, you have to pass race school and it's all about how you pass people safely in the course, but you're basically flying around in a big circle. And um, you can be in the biplane class, you can be in the jet class, you can be in the unlimited class, light sport class. There's a whole bunch of different classes of airplanes, just like fighting, how there's different uh, weight classes. So in um, Reno Air Racing, usually you have to have uh, an incredibly long history in flying the type of airplane that you're about to race. Um, you have to be incredibly proficient at it. Uh, you cannot be a cowboy out there. Um, but you do have to have a little, a certain level of craziness um, because you, you're you doing a type of flying that normally is just not done by normal people. So um, by normal pilots, at least. Most of the guys that I know that fly Reno are either competition aerobatic pilots, so they perform at air shows. Um, I've met several astronauts who do this as like their retirement job and um that's brilliant it's like yeah i've been to the moon what can i do that's kind of close to that oh i know i'll right. race, race around the desert in reno uh, yeah i guess uh, teach their own but i mean one of them um that i've become good friends with his name is hoot gibson hoot gibson and he used to be an astronaut and when i met him the first reno air races because the cool thing about reno is you can walk right up to an airplane look at it touch it and somebody from the crew will come over and talk to you about it. You might be able to meet the pilot uh, who's going to be racing. So that's how I met Hoot. And uh, Hoot's awesome. And he's one of the classiest people I've ever met. Um, and the following year, I went back and I saw him in front of his plane. And I went to go say hello. And he remembered my name from a year ago. That's and then awesome. from there, I was just like, all right, you, you and I are going to be friends. Um, I love it when people... Are classy like that so um so yeah that's that's how you get to race at reno that's awesome yeah i went with uh, my mate tom who actually was on the podcast last week uh, he's an aircraft engineer back in the uk and he just he loves the reno air races and so he came over to uh i think he was in new york and he was doing his some type of qualification to allow him to work or sign off on american planes back in the uk and while he was there, he was like, well, why don't I just come over to the West Coast for a few days? And it was right as Reno was on. So we literally went, oh, I just realized I've got my cursor on the screen there. We uh, we went uh, to Reno and we had such a good time. Um, we actually, I don't know why we did it. It just sort of, I think it evolved because he said that he really wanted a Stetson. He's, he's bald, like totally bald. He shaves his head. And uh, he was like, I really want a Stetson. So I was like, all right, we'll go get you a Stetson. So we went to a boot barn. And when he got a Stetson, I was like, well, I want a Stetson now. So I got a Stetson. <laughs> and then I was like, well, if we're going to wear Stetsons, why don't, we, why don't we get a nice shirt? And so we got the cowboy shirt matching. So he wore the black one with the, the silver trim. And I wore the white one with the black trim. And then it was like, well, now we may as well get cowboy boots, right? And so we ended up going to Reno, these two English blokes, going there in like full cowboy outfits which isn't anything to do with reno air races we were just living that life um and we had so much fun he he got us the tickets that get us into like the one of the lounge or not lounges but one of the big tents so we got food mm -hmm. and drinks all day and yeah we we walked around and um I, I was trying to tell you about this the other week the name of the aircraft i want to say it was like juggernaut or behemoth or something like that does that ring a bell no and you said it was a corsair it's got the, the one uh, with the folding the wings, wings that flip up yeah, yeah. That um, fold up. let me i'm gonna google it right now um 
because we he basically went and talked to them and they ended up letting us go into their like pit area and we watched the race with them and like you say it is mad and and what i was most surprised about was the fact that the unlimited class which is the the big like old they are they to me who doesn't know much about airplanes they just look like old bombers or old world war ii aircraft they were actually faster than the jets which was unbelievable um i disagree they are not faster really Um, they seemed a lot faster they're incredibly fast um but you have mostly reciprocating engines you've got they are world war ii aircraft mostly um bearcats and things like that and uh they are going about four five hundred miles an hour um is what they typically clock the unlimited at when you get into the jet class you're over like six seven hundred hours hours um miles, miles per hour. Per hour. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so but right. it's it's a lot more exciting to watch the unlimited because you're you're watching airplanes that are complete they don't look anything like what they originally were. I mean, this is this is no no rules, you know, right. you can do whatever you want to this to this airplane. They the other were, ones have to be stock. Yeah, they they were saying about how they had basically shoehorned in this I I don't know what engine <laughs> yeah. it was, but they they had had to shoehorn in this engine into the front of the plane and had to make like custom cowlings because it wouldn't fit and redo right. fuel lines and it, I mean it literally was like taking a I don't know like a I guess not as small as a Mazda MX-5, but like taking a regular saloon car and then shoehorning in like the biggest V8 truck motor you can find. Like it was insane. Yeah. I kind of relate it to a hairdryer. It's like sticking a V8 inside of a hairdryer. (laughs) Right. You you just really can't. Yeah. And you got to make sure you're not overheating. You got to make sure that there's, you know, all the other things that make an engine perform optimally you have to make sure all those things are happening too it was it was a lot of fun uh i just looked it up dreadnought that's the oh dreadnought that they're the guys that we were hanging out with yeah Um, so yeah i think he won um but it was yeah it was it was a lot of fun anyway we we had a good time so that's cool like that's that's interesting what what class do you think you would like to uh to go and enter in because actually i'll tell you what i love the most the stall drags Oh, stall drags. Are Can awesome. you explain to people that don't understand, like I didn't when I went there, what a stall drag is? So, a stall drag is a competition um, where basically you can direct the airflow on the top of the wing to make your wing hang off of its lift coefficient. And you can, remember in a stall people, competition. Remember, people listening to this don't know what that means. Okay. Which, okay, I'll um, tell you what. Why don't I explain what it I'll is? I'll do it. And then, hold okay. on. I'll explain what it is, and then you correct me. Got it. Okay. Yep. Here's what stall drag is. The aeroplane is parked on a on a grassy runway. It drives forward. It takes off after what seems like about 10 feet. I don't know how it gets in the air because it doesn't look like it's going fast enough. It then hovers about... 10 feet off the ground for, I don't know, maybe like an eighth of a mile or something. Then it kind of does this weird sideways turn, looks like it's about to crash, somehow doesn't crash, hits the floor, bounces a little bit, does a U-turn, does the same thing back, skews itself in the air again, like kind of sideways, kind of like with a bit of weird angle to it. Again, looks like it's going to crash, doesn't crash, hits the ground, and then one of them wins. Is that Was that about right? I don't think I could have explained it any better. <laughs> <laughs> it is nuts though isn't it like you so yeah. g- carry on and explain the science behind it with the uh the, the drag coefficient and stuff but they they managed to essentially slow the airplane down by turning it aggressively sideways right 
Well, and it's it's not uh, that is a part of a part of it, um, but it's it's basically manipulating aerodynamics. So they stick these little things on the top of the wing. Uh, they, they're these little tiny vortices, and they call them vortex generators. And they just look like like they almost look like tic tacs. I mean, they're so small, and there's about fifty on each wing. And um, being the left side of the wing and the right side of the wing, and then they um, they just stick them on with tape, and they'll change tape. like, well, literally like <laughs> double sided Velcro, three M tape, or whatever, um, and then they'll uh, they'll change the wing like how it's positioned, or they'll change like the flaps, or however they'll do. It's they'll do whatever they can to this airplane. Now, if you want to see a really really cool airplane that won this, um, but then ended up crashing afterwards, look up Drago. Drago yes, is, yeah, I remember thing. that. It's like a giant red mosquito. And then after Reno, the pilot, the guy that owns it, um, he left in too bad of cross of crosswinds, I think, at Reno, and ended up crashing and destroying the plane. Yeah. Afterwards, that, that was, was crazy, devastating. Wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, but he won all the competitions. Um, he's he, ever since he, that airplane was finished, it's been one of the champions of stole competitions. But yeah, that's what they do. They take off in like five feet and they land in five feet. And it's all about who can land in the shortest distance and who can take off in the shortest distance. And for an airplane to just take off like a helicopter is really bizarre to yeah. see but it's really cool and when you look at some of the guys that do this and you talk to them and they're telling you about like how they tweaked it and you're just like whoa dude you're way into this this is, <laughs> this is really cool <laughs> well done <laughs> yeah so, it, so there was a guy racing there who had uh he was in a, a basically a stock cessna and he was mm -hmm. absolutely kicking ass and milney is that who it is you know the guy long long blondish hair I, he was in an airplane. I couldn't see his hair, but it was, I know. I know it was from a, South Africa. He's right. badass. Yeah, dude, it was crazy. He was so you've yeah. got like you say you've got Drago. You've got all these like cool looking planes that look like modified airplanes, and then mm -hmm. you've got this dude who just rocks up. It it here's what it looked like. It looked like a Formula One grid, and then somebody pulls up in their Ford Mondeo, just like all right, all right, lads, can I uh, can I get in on this? Is that is that cool? Cool. All right. Yeah. Sound. And then wins. That's what it looked like. He's just in a bone stock looking Cessna. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. So what, uh, what would you like to get into then? What class would you do? Uh, let's see. Um, probably the jet class. I think I'd like to be in the jet class. Yeah. They just go so fast. <laughs> it just looks so cool. It's so nuts to watch because they. Uh, we, we were having this conversation last week or whenever you came down here, but it, it's. I was kind of bored a little bit when they first started because they all like take off in formation and then they kind of do a little lap and that's like, all right, ready, go. And from the sidelines, you're just like, uh, okay. Watch them go around uh, in circle. Okay, cool. And they're, <laughs> and they're obviously miles away. And right. then when it gets down to like the last lap and you see the two people like first and second and P2 just starts to lift. And I was like, where the hell is he going? Like, he's, he's not going to win if he does that. And he like climbs and climbs and climbs and climbs. And you can see P1 getting away from him as P1 is staying low. And then out of nowhere, P2 just does this insane nosedive and just boom. 
and at the like got i don't know which race it was but one of the the times this guy that was in second position just absolutely nailed it and right on the checkered flag just came blasting by and yeah and then they all do that big like pull up at the end and yeah it was yeah that was that was the most exciting part seeing that the tactics get involved because like you say when they're just flying around in circles there's not really much as a spectator to see but that bit at the end oh my god it was like yeah it was like when they reintroduced overtaking in formula one it was like yes this is what we need Yeah, that's that's exactly like think about yeah NASCAR. Everybody just goes around in a circle, and then unless there's a crash or it's right at the finish line, nobody really, you know, they do other things. <laughs> it, just exactly. Well, <laughs> well, I think I think that's the key, isn't it? You go to Red Bull Air races to have a drink and enjoy yourself and walk yeah. around the pits. Like the actual racing, I think Stoll drags you go and watch because it's right. It's 20 feet in front of you but everything mm-hmm. else it's just like you look at oh cool yeah, yeah they're still going great all right still a few laps left like where's the beer tent right so reno air races that's on your bucket list and then what was the other thing you said the other thing oh uh com- competitive uh aerobatics aerobatics well those are just two, the two types of flying i haven't done but they're so the ones that you I- said that you would you would like to try they're, they're on your bucket list well reno definitely is on my bucket list competition aerobatics uh, I like just take, I'm looking out the window, like I'm just going to see an airplane, but I like, <laughs> just, um, I like just flying aerobatics. So I don't know if I necessarily need to compete. I'll just go up and, and do aerobatics and just have a blast. It's so. kind of the equivalent of being given the keys to a rear wheel drive car and an empty parking lot and then just go in. Yeah. Have fun. Yeah, Exactly. And so, exactly. how Try not did... to block yourself out. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a real real problem, isn't it? I mean, if you go up there and you mm-hmm. crank on a bit hard, then that's it, night-night. And then, uh, I mean, uh, without getting morbid, but have people had accidents because of that? Absolutely. Like, um, I guess there's no, there's no fail-safe, is there? Like, if you black out of the controls, then that's it. That is it. Um, and before I talk about that, my battery on my phone went a little low so is it okay if i just take uh plug my phone in sure yeah go for it we'll have a musical uh, interlude okay okay so abingdon is back uh so yeah blackouts you were just talking about how people have blacked out whilst doing aerobatics and what's what can they do or what can be done to save that so the military teaches you breathing techniques and um, you can also wear a G-suit because uh, basically all a blackout is, is that you've lost um, pressure, blood pressure in your head. So you're, it's, it's crazy. I have, I've blacked out uh, where I haven't seen anything, but I knew that I was blacking out. So it's not like I went unconscious. I just couldn't see. Um, and that was when I pulled, I want to say I pulled about eight G's in an aircraft. Uh, it was a small little Lance airplane that was, uh, I was give, being given a test flight and the guy, the pilot really knows what he's doing. He's a great pilot. In fact, he's raced at Reno. His name is Ernie. And he took me up and I was like, show me what this airplane can do. And so he's like, okay. And he didn't show me, he didn't prep me really before he showed me, but I was like, hey, this is fun. I'm having a great time. And uh, and I did. I saw, like, imagine your peripheral just completely go away. Okay, tonight. yeah, that, like, tunnel vision. Tunnel vision, totally. And then, um, but if you, 
squeeze or grunt or do these breathing techniques that you can, I'm not going to demonstrate them, but you can look them up on YouTube. <laughs> um, then you can force the blood back up into your head and wake yourself up. No. So just have to know how to do that. And if you wear a G suit, then that's compressing your legs a lot um, because that's right. where that blood would go. Oh, interesting. So it like stops the blood from actually getting to your legs. It's like a roadblock. Yeah. Ah. Exactly. So, wow. yeah. That's... Just like compression socks, but on a much stronger level. Yeah, that's crazy. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever had any type of experience like that of, of almost by other than jujitsu. <laughs> I've never had an experience of blacking out from, from G Force. I wonder what the, the most G's I've ever pulled it pulled is. Oh, excuse me, a little burp there. I wonder what the uh the biggest the hardest G's I've ever pulled. I mean, to be honest, even just like when we went up and we did that first flying lesson and we were doing some of those um, you know, those bank turns. I mean, it doesn't take much for you to physically start to be like, oh, okay, I can, I can feel myself like getting pulled down a little bit. So I can't even imagine what it must be like to, to do it properly. Yeah. And all the maneuvers that we did were all 1G maneuvers. Right. So they weren't even... <laughs> they were know. nothing. It's like, shut up, we Adam. Weren't they weren't anything. Oh man, I I do miss it. I I really want to get back out in the in the old aeroplane. I think once all this coronavirus stuff is uh, is over and now, oh, I I don't know if I I told you my uh my I got my results back and so my blood levels are all a okay, which means that fantastic. Yeah, which means that I don't have to spend a million dollars a month on medical stuff. So I can now start spending, hopefully not a million dollars a month, but I can start allocating those funds towards aeroplanes. I like it. Yeah, so I'll be back out to Vegas to do some more flying lessons. Uh, my mate Tom's actually doing his. He's done all of his written stuff during quarantine. He's he's basically just smashed out all of the the study and the theory, um, and then all he's got to do now is wait until he can actually get in a hairy plane with someone. Awesome. Yeah, nice. it's probably a smart idea. Maybe I should have done that, but I just uh, honestly, I am so dreading the the actual theory and the written stuff because I hate it. Like when I was scuba diving. Same thing. We had to be in a classroom for like four days straight. And I was like, oh, this is so, I, I just, I hate, I hated school. I hate studying. I, I'm so much more of like a practical hands-on person, but I appreciate that that doesn't teach you how to fly an airplane properly. Well, there are some rules that you have to know. The FAA does impose rules. That's probably the most um, challenging for people that don't like to study. The good thing that you already have going for you is, you know, cars so well. And a four-stroke engine, you could probably tell me all about it. And you yeah. could probably tell me about, you know, turbochargers versus superchargers. Those same systems are on airplanes. So that's a good thing is you already have that. You don't have to learn hydraulics. You don't have to learn electrical systems. You know, the difference between an alternator and a carburetor. Airplanes have alternators and carburetors, whether it's fuel injected or not. So those things you already have. So that's a good thing because that's a large portion of the ground and the theory training. Because you need to know, like there was a time when I was flying an airplane to LA from Vegas and um, the RPM gauge just went to zero. But, uh, well, but the engine was still going. Uh, it wasn't like I heard any sound different. Right. So based on what you know about cars, would you have a guess as to what could have happened? I mean, was it was it an older aeroplane, or was it a, was it one that it would was, have had not? So, yeah. so the RPM would have been done by a cable rather than by a sensor. Correct. Yeah, so probably just the cable just spat itself out and. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's all it was. So it wasn't a big deal. And I was able to continue the flight all the way um, to LA. I opted to go to LA because I was landing at a Cessna uh, service center. Yeah. So I figured if anybody's going to know what the <laughs> issue is going to be, it's going to be these guys because yeah, they work yeah. on Cessnas all the time. So, but I was flying with a student and uh, they were, once I pointed it out to them because they were just getting ready to fly into LA. So they were looking at their charts and, mm -hmm. you know, going over everything and just being really prepared. And I'm just looking at this RPM gauge and I'm kind of tapping on it. Like, is it going to do anything? It's not doing anything. <laughs> hello, so, hello. And, uh, and we're probably over Palmdale. So about halfway. And God, thinking, you don't want to, you don't want to go down in Palmdale. They got nothing no, there. They got no. nothing there. No. So, so when I finally, you know, brought it up to her, well, I, I said, okay, you're all ready to go to LA. Let's check all of our instruments before we start our descent, before yeah. we start calling. Do you uh, notice anything different here? <laughs> and they were like, what? And, um, and immediately, and this is the difference between just somebody learning how to fly versus somebody who has had years of experience with lots of faults um, in airplanes is they've started looking for an emergency landing point. And I'm like, right. we don't have to land. Yeah, Airplane's yeah. still flying. So let's just keep flying. So it was a great teaching moment. Um, yeah. But you already kind of, you, without even being in the airplane, you pretty much figured out what the issue was just because you already have systems knowledge. So that's, right. you're ahead of the Okay. Oh, good. Don't well, get discouraged. Okay. That's good. Good. I'm glad. And and so when that kind of thing happens, are you as, a, as an experienced pilot able to just listen to the RPM of the motor and kind of know in the same way that when I get in my car, I don't have to know, I don't have to look and see when I'm going to hit 7,000 RPM to know that that's when I have to shift. I can hear it. Is that is that the same with you? Do you build up that sort of, I guess it's not muscle memory, but that familiarity with the aircraft that allows you to just do it by ear? Definitely. And, uh, you know, and unfortunately, I'm not as keen on a lot of different types of airplanes because I ferry airplanes. I've flown over 80 different types of airplanes. So knowing what a Partenavia sounds like at, you know, 3000 RPM right. versus a 172 versus a 182 Cessnas, they may sound a little different. Um, a lot of them have the same engine. So Continental and Lycoming are the two main uh, engine manufacturers for yeah. piston airplanes with propellers. Um, but I'm I'm gonna know that if my radio starts flickering, I've got electrical issue. Um, if I'm checking my altimeter and my voltmeter and all of those systems, then I can probably deduce what's going on and what I have left, you know, it, yeah. it's very, it's very basic information that you can do a lot with. So obviously your alternator charges your battery. And uh, if your alternator dies and you don't have a backup alternator, then you're literally running off of your battery. And you know that your battery can go dead just like in a phone um, after so long. So what do you do? Well, just like on your phone where you clear out all your apps, so you're not running down your battery, you start turning off all the systems in the plane so you don't run down your battery fast. So it's 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 kind of common sense, but it's just in a machine that you're sitting in, levitating in the air, <laughs> moving forward right. um, over mountains and oceans. And things yeah, like yeah. So, no, I mean, that yeah. makes sense. And, and I think I'm very good in those types of stressful situations. I'm not a flapper. 
which I think is good. That's and, good. And so, yeah, I, I and I, I do like systematic. Um, I don't have OCD, which is funny because my mum got me this, um, which I thought was <laughs> <laughs> was pretty cool. Um, I don't I don't have OCD, like as in diagnosed OCD, but as you can see by the mess of my my editing suite here. But I definitely <clears throat> I like things to be right, and so if I have a system, if I have a plan to be able to check through things, I like that. I, I like that kind of formula. So no, that's that's good to know. That is good to know. So tell me a little bit about your experience. Then uh, I guess first of all, like how did you get into aeroplanes? Where where did that passion because I feel like with aeroplanes it's not something that you're necessarily like a lot of boys get into cars because that's just the thing but not a lot of boys get into aeroplanes like I feel there has to be some type of external influence that gets you into them at an early age how did you start out with your passion for aeroplanes uh I was 14 um and it was free food that's totally, that's totally free, free food. Free food? What? <laughs> free food. Uh, my high school, which uh, in America we call them high schools, not secondary schools. Um, my high school was, uh, th- well, they had, it was at John Burroughs in Burbank, California. And um, on uh, Wednesdays was career, the first Wednesday of the month was career Wednesday lunches. And so the career office would host this kind of like small little lunch event where they would order subway or pizza or whatever and somebody would come in and talk about what they did for a living and i never cared what the subject was i just knew that the first wednesday of every month (laughs) i could go get free food at the career center so um so i was 14 i've been doing this pretty much since i was in high school and uh which i went to school right before i turned 13 so like 12 years i've been doing this for a couple years and (laughs) And uh, I walk in, I'm the only girl um, there, and in walk two pilots from a flight school in Burbank, in Burbank Airport. Um, Burbank Airport today doesn't have any flight schools anymore. They stopped that a while back. But these guys came They went out of business paying for free food for students. I know, I know. Um, I had my share, I I got my fill. And uh, and they started... they really talked about two things that struck me. Um, And the first was that you do not have to join the military to learn how to fly. Uh, I always thought that's where pilots came from. Um, I didn't realize that there were these small little flight schools at all these little airports. Um, There's also university programs. You can get a degree in aviation at uh, UND, University of North Dakota, or they have specific aeronautical universities like Embry-Riddle. So um, that was another option I had no idea had existed. And then the second thing that they said was that you don't have to fly the airlines after you know how to fly. There's all these other types of jobs. You can tow banners around the ocean. Uh, you can fly helicopters. You can um, do uh, sky typing over Dodger Stadium. You can do the weather in the morning and get off of work by 10 a.m. every day. Uh, you're waking up at like 3 a.m., but <laughs> if you only right. want to work 3 to 10 and have the rest of your day off, then you could fly around uh, and report on traffic like all the news stations had. Um, you could fly corporate and get really big tips from celebrities, typically if they're pretty cool. Um, you could, uh, you could ferry airplanes like what I do. I do competition aerobatics or do promotional type flying. Um, there's so many different types of flying jobs out there. 
that I realized airlines are actually a very small portion. And I didn't necessarily want to be uh, like a bus driver in the air um, for the airlines. <laughs> oh my God. All, I, of, I, all of the pilots listening, commercial pilots listening, they're going, oh, this, this cow, can't believe she just said that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a well, bus driver in the sky. You know, I and I and I have flown for the airlines, and I and I talked to a lot of the airline guys, and they've lost their passion for flying. A lot of them, of not course. all of them, but a lot have lost their passion. They treat it like a job. Yeah, and absolutely. it is a job when you're under the guise of a large company. You know, like your Delta, your American, one of the legacy carriers, where you are one in thousands of pilots. You know, so it's. Um, it just, I love the passion of flying. I still get giddy when I take off. And uh, to get paid to travel or to get paid to fly just kind of seems like stealing. So anyway, at the end of the lunch, I ended up late to my last class. I was the last one asking questions. I took back like a booklet of information. I went home that night. I was like, mom, I want to be a pilot. And she was like, oh, that's nice. Pass the peas. And, you know, it didn't really give me any credit um, for it then. Uh, but, you know, when you're 14, you change your mind every week. So uh, it wasn't until I was 16 that I took my first intro flight. And that was also out of the same flight school. Um, and I, I was struck. I was, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Haven't left the airport since. That's amazing. And so, how long after that then was it that you got your license? Well, with um, flight training, it can be very expensive. Um, it is on average around five to ten thousand per year private pilots yeah. rating. And to get to the airline level, you're probably at an investment of somewhere around eighty to a hundred thousand if you want to go career. So you can get them like a vocational school loan. Uh, so because of the high cost and because of my parents' lack of understanding of what the aviation industry was, uh, they said, you have to go to college. So after high school, I went to college and um, still kept my little book, you know, when you're in high school and you have like the book that you, um, I don't know if this is just what girls do, but you, know, you have all the little clippings from magazines and like your dream boards and all that kind of thing. Uh, so I had an entire book dedicated to aviation and I completed university at UC San Diego. And then um, one of the things that I'm really grateful at doing is I did join the Peace Corps after college and I went to Africa for a while as a volunteer there. And then the second I got back, I walked on to Santa Monica airport and started asking the flight schools uh, three questions. And um, this is, from something my mother taught me. She said, be smart enough to be dumb enough to ask. And the three questions were, one, can you teach me how to fly really fast? Because I've got all these student loans and I just came back from an underdeveloped country. I have no job, um, so I don't have a lot of money. Uh, so can you teach me how to fly really fast? Because I need to start getting paid for this. Two, do you have any jobs available? Because everything I just said before, I don't have a job, I just came back. Right. And then three, will you pay for my flight training? And that last question is a question that probably most people wouldn't ask, but mm -hmm. one flight school in particular at Santa Monica, um, I think they've since closed the location. They're called American Flyers and they have locations all over the US. They have an internship program where you work for them, you get paid and you get your flight training covered. Wow. So half of the payment, half of the um, salary is in scholarship monies. And then the other half is 
like a wage, a living wage. Right. So I think my paychecks were $900 back in 2006. And then um, the other half was all in flight training. So wow. I got all of my ratings up to the commercial level in one year. Wow, that's fast. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. And that's where you met Michael, isn't it? That is where I met Michael. Yes. We were both at American Flyers and I was working behind the desk as the intern that was helping schedule students and instructors and checking out uh, pilot supplies to people, things like that. And he walked in with a British accent and I said, hey, where are you from? Because you don't sound like you're from London. (laughs) And he has a bit of a muddled accent, you know, and um, and he said he was from the north. And it turned out that we were from the same area of uh, just north of Leeds. It's crazy, isn't it? That's that's funny. And he was learning to fly, was he, at that point? I don't think he was learning to fly. He already knew how to fly, but I want to say he was doing like another rating or he was doing some maybe recurrency training, something like that. Got you, got you. And so how did you transition then from working behind the desk, doing the interning to bussing planes around? Like you you were, so you deliver aircraft, correct? That's mm-hmm. one of the things that you do. And talk to me a little bit about that. Uh, I've, I've heard some stories from my friend Tom about that where they take a back seat out, fill it full of fuel and then just go like puddle jumping all the way from the US back to Europe. And have you got any cool stories? Uh, I I do. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know where to where to start. I could start with the first one. The first one, my and I see my first one. It was my first Trans Pacific crossing. Uh, I've done about forty crossings over the Pacific. Uh, typically, they average about ten to eighteen hours, depending on the type of plane. Um, and uh, I've before I did Pacific crossings, which is something that I've always wanted to do. Uh, I was just doing like down through Central America, South America and taking airplanes to anywhere and most airplanes are manufactured in the united states and the u.s is also very aviation friendly especially general aviation Mm -hmm. so we don't have a lot of the fees that other countries have it's very expensive to fly in other countries on a small airplane so a lot of times when people are shopping for an airplane you don't just go down to like your local Cessna dealership, like a car dealership that doesn't exist. Um, so you look online and when you look online and you find the airplane that you want specked out the way you want it, uh, it oftentimes is located in the U S you hire somebody like myself to pick up the plane and bring it over to you. So I've taken airplanes, uh, all over Australia, um, Malaysia, uh, China, Taiwan, Japan. I've done a lot of Australasia. Um, I've gone as far south as, uh, let's see, Panama. Uh, well, um, in Central America, I've gone all the way down to Panama. I've flown all around the canal, which is a lot of fun. Um, I've gone to the Galapagos. I've gone, um, I've never done Europe. I've gone all the way up through Canada, over Alaska, down through Russia, um, into Russia. That's so amazing. I've, I've gone everywhere but Europe in a small plane. Wow, that is incredible. And what's the longest trip you've done in the smallest plane? Hmm. Well, my longest leg was a Cirrus SR20 18.0 from California to Maui. I was supposed to land in Honolulu, but I said, screw this. I don't want to keep flying. It's been this long. It was a dog of an airplane. <laughs> and so I landed. Maui is 30 minutes closer than Honolulu. Okay. So, um, yeah, I was, I was exhausted. 
Uh, and I've never slept. I've never slept in an airplane, even if I've flown for that long. So being up straight for about 20, probably 20 hours or so, because you you wake up about two hours before you launch, um, just to make sure the fuel is right, to make sure all the conditions are right. You're checking the weather. You're um, just kind of getting all that stuff done. So yeah, I was, uh, that was my longest leg. My longest trip, hmm, probably was picking up a King Air, which is a twin turboprop out of Japan and taking it to Texas. I think that was probably the longest. And that was Japan to Russia, through Alaska, down through Canada, down the coast, stopped in Vegas, did some systems removals, and then continued on. That, that's so crazy. I can't even imagine. And so how many times are you stopping along the way to refuel? And are you doing it by yourself or do you have a co-pilot? So it depends on the airplane. Um, some airplanes, you have to have a second pilot. Um, a 737, for example, it's a two-pilot two crew. Um, and most of the airplanes though, because of my frame, I'm very tiny. So I fit into small airplanes and I have experience in a lot of small airplanes. So insurance and ferry companies like to hire me because they know that I'm not going to exceed the weight and balance of the plane. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be able to fit in the plane, like around a ferry tank that's usually sitting in the passenger seat. Um, and cause some planes, you only have a passenger side door. So the way you get into the cockpit, like into the, into the left seat or the captain's seat, you have to go through the passenger side. Mm -hmm. Well, if you had a ferry tank sitting right there, then you got to maneuver around that ferry tank, which could be like a 30 to 50 gallon tank and sit down in <laughs> your captain's seat. It's You're so basically crazy. wrapping up around you. <laughs> right. That's so wild. That's so wild. And on those trips, do you, what do you do? Do you like listen to music? Do you just like because i love i love driving long distance um mm -hmm. i really enjoy just getting on the road and banging on a podcast or whatever so i i get that i get that it can be quite quite like um uh meditative to do that but Definitely. what what do you do like let's say you're flying from japan to texas and you've got to go over i mean essentially you're going like via the arctic circle right you're going over the top of the planet rather than around the the middle Yes. So if you are going uh, top, it's typically with an airplane that takes jet A fuel. Jet A fuel is um, it's prevalent all over the world. If you're taking an airplane that has 100 low lead as a fuel type, then you're typically crossing the oceans um, because if you put 100 low lead in a country like Russia, where there really is no 100 low lead, then uh, it might not be there when you show up. So. Right. Um, there's certain conditions based on the type of airplane, the type of engines that airplane has as to if you're going uh, north or if you're going through, you know, equatorially. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'll listen to, I will listen to music. Uh, I have, so I, I, I set myself on a schedule. If I know I'm going to do a 14 hour flight, um, a lot of guys, they'll just download a bunch of movies off Netflix and they'll just watch them the whole time and make sure the systems are good. And I mean, you know, I guess that's, that's the thing. It's not you. You're not stopping at red lights or anything, are you? You just yeah. Uh, no, it's just you and you. And so <laughs> that's it. I like to treat mine a little bit more like a, a standardized day. So I have mini goals. Um, so what I'll do is I'll get into the plane. I'll make sure everything's good. 
I'll take off. And I'm not saying that this way is better than any way. It's just the way I do it um, because it's just a long journey. So I want to, I want to break it up as much as I can. So I get in, I'll take off and keep in mind, like, let's say I'm flying a little Cessna, like mm-hmm. the plane we flew. Yeah. Um, that was a that little plane. plane. How you've flown those distance? No, no, I've never ferried a skycatcher. <laughs> I was going to say, we, we couldn't even make it up to, is it Mount Baldy that we were aiming for? uh yeah charleston, charleston. yeah, it was, yeah <laughs> we couldn't even get there it was like it's like one of those computer games where you drive like off the edge of the map and there's something out there but you never get to it you just keep going <laughs> just like we'd be great on those stall competitions <laughs> yeah, yeah for real for real yeah we, we were for those of you guys that don't know what we're talking about when i did my first uh flying lesson the the aim was just to go out and get me used to what it was like just con- control an airplane nothing more than that uh and so i was like well why don't we try and fly like over some snow because there was some snow on mount charleston so i was like all right cool she had never flown one of these sky catchers before and so we get up there and we're like headed towards mount charleston and we just we were never gonna get there <laughs> i feel like even if we had had all the fuel on board it, we just never would have got it the mountain seemed to just be moving at the same speed as us <laughs> so in the end and I was like, lean forward. Like- <laughs> <laughs> we, were, we were both like, yeah, rocking it. Like, come on, we can do it. We can do it. <laughs> chugga, chugga, choo, choo. Right. Yes. Um, but so, so you kind of, you already know what it's like on a ferry flight. So when you take off, if an airplane that typically takes off in about 500 feet to 1,000 mm-hmm. feet, when it's packed full of fuel, it's 130% over its gross weight limitation. 130%. That's how much you're allowed. Yeah. Right, for the okay. FAA. So if you have that much heavier, you might take off in 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 wow, okay. feet. Yeah. So it's going to take a lot longer to, to, to lift off, which also means that your climb out is maybe 200, 100 feet per minute. Okay. So if you're climbing, normally you're going to climb out at like 700, 1,000 feet per minute. And now you're like crawling at 100 feet a minute to get up to your final altitude, which if you cross the ocean at 6,000 feet is uh, the minimum that you can be at. So if that's the case, then when what I do is I'll take off, I'll get up to my altitude, I'll establish communications with air traffic control, meaning I've made positive radio contact. Hey guys, can you hear me? Yep, can you hear me? Yep, we're all good. And if I've done all of those things, I'm almost an hour to an hour and a half into the flight already. Right. So what I do is I treat myself to breakfast because I've probably taken off at like 4 a.m. So I treat myself to breakfast and I watch the sunrise and I have all the systems. I've tested the fuel tanks. I've tested my ox tanks. I've tested my radios. I've tested everything. If everything is kosher, then I get food. And then as the day goes on, I'll have a lunchtime, I'll have a dinner time, and I'll have maybe a couple snacks in between. But that's what I do. I pack breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and I treat it like I'm having a full day sitting in an office. But my office is just 6,000 feet over the ocean. Wow. And it's going to kill me if I don't do anything. (laughs) (laughs) What what do you do if you need a wee? Oh, great. <laughs> so um, this is a funny story. So the first com- uh, first crossing I did was with another pilot. It was a guy. And he was like, go buy a Sunny D bottle. And I was like, okay. So um, we empty, you empty out the Sunny D bottle. But that, that spout is not big. 
enough. It might be for a guy, but it's it's not big enough. For you need to get one of those shewees. <laughs> so I know. So um, I do have a go girl now, but that was the most difficult experience to try and work this sunny d bottle um i was not a fan so what i use what i bought and this is for any girls that that ever are in situations with motorcycles or rvs or planes or whatever is i buy the plastic um aroma seal coffee mate bucket thing you know that you get the the ground coffee in and yeah. I'll donate the coffee to the mechanics. And that thing has a handle on it. It's like built in. So it's almost like a small, it's like a small potty. <laughs> and that with a go girl and I'm totally good. Nice. Totally. That's cool. And then you can obviously put the lid back on so you don't, don't be sloshing around everywhere. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I, will, I will say that I do um, change how I eat two days before. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, because so, you, you don't want to be caught up there needing number two. Mm-mm. Nope. Number that, two does not have that. That is a that is a small cabin to be stuck in there with a with a stowaway. <laughs> yeah, no stowaways. <laughs> yeah, I I went jet skiing yesterday. Uh, no, not yesterday, Sunday. Uh, in fact, you should check out that video. I saw a ton of dolphins. It was amazing, absolutely amazing. But while I was out there, I, I had to go for a jet ski wee, and that was quite fun actually. But bit bit like precarious as I'm balancing. But as I'm like stood off the back of the jet ski having a wee, all I could think was, "There's sharks in there." Like, oh, <laughs> like what, what if one? What if one? Like I don't know. They can they can sense it. They can like feel the the change in the temperature of the water, and it whoa, comes out and gets me. But it didn't. I was, I was okay. I was fine. So well, they don't like the taste of humans. So I think you'll be all right. You see, the problem is, is that a lot of them, for them to understand that they don't like the taste of humans, they have yeah. to have a little nibble first. And when you've got a 15 foot great white, a little nibble is more than, you know, than I appreciate being nibbled on by a shark. Mm. But there were dolphins, so hopefully the dolphins would keep me keep me safe. So what is the most insane story you have with an aeroplane? Maybe that's exciting. Maybe that's dangerous. Maybe that's, I don't know. What is it? Because, oh, hold on. Hold the phone. I just want to say this. Abingdon used to fly the aeroplane for Hustler, correct? Uh, yes, um, I did. I used to fly for, well, Harry Monet is the owner of the Hustler Clubs. And he worked very closely with Larry Flint and he's got a very unique airplane here in Vegas. There's only, I think five flying in the world and it's called an SJ 30. It's a swear engine. Um, and I was flying for, I was, it's, it's a single pilot jet, which is really unique. Most jets, you need to have two pilots, but this one, they certified single pilot and Harry, um, was hiring a, a pilot to replace who his current pilot was at the time. And um, and so I was one of the candidates. And so I flew with them for a while, but then I actually turned down the job. And I turned it down because it was too much airplane for me. At the time, I it was my first jet. And I'd flown plenty of turboprops, uh, which is a jet engine with a propeller, um, but I'd never flown anything that went Mach 0.83 single pilot so that i felt i felt like i was not the right person for for his job 
Um, if I was one of two pilots and he was hiring two pilots, I would have been like, yes, uh, bring me on. Um, but he only wanted a single pilot. So, um, yeah, but yeah, I've flown him to, see, we flew to New Orleans. He's got a couple of clubs there. His family's in Minnesota, flew there, flew to San Francisco. We had a couple of clubs there. Um, we went and did like steep turns and stuff around the Golden Gate Bridge <laughs> and all the maneuvers that you and I flew. Uh, I did that in a big jet. That's so, cool. That's that awesome. And so is that jet all kitted out? Is it is it like a regular jet or is it disco balls and stripper poles? Very, no. <laughs> no, it looks like a regular jet. It's a smaller version of Michael's new jet. Let me, I want to Google this. So what's it called? SJ30. SJ30. Let's see what this looks like. And it's a saber jet, swearing jet. Ooh, okay. Um. That's it cool. looks like an F-16 and a Lear had a baby. So if you look at the landing gear, it's a mm -hmm. single point landing gear at the bottom. Okay. It looks like a diagonal comes out. Okay. Um, and, uh, and a Lear jet's a very small personal jet. So it looks like the two of them just had a baby. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm finding pictures right now. So it's like this, a crazy airplane. This awesome. right here yeah. is, uh, oh, hold on. There we go. Wait, wait. Will it focus? No, it won't focus. But anyway, that's what it looks like. There we go. One of those. That's cool. Nice. And so they do Mac 8.3? 3. Mac 8.3, yeah. Wow. That's that's pretty speedy. And so how quickly will that get you to, say, like West Coast to East Coast? Oh, um, depending on the winds, probably four to five hours. Wow. Okay. So basically as fast as like any commercial airliner. Faster. Most commercial, yeah, most commercial airliners are flying at Mach point eight to like Mach point eight three. Right. So, um, yeah, this is kind of going a little bit faster. And the thing about the square engine is it can also go to higher altitudes. So you're flying. Are you saying at square engine? Square engine. Square. I was like square engine. I was like, what is a square engine? engine? Hold square on, engine. I, I got to try and get this camera to like refocus. There we go, refocus on me. It annoys me when it does that. I thought you were just telling me to like shut up. Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> For those of you listening, I, I'm putting my hand up to the webcam because this has got autofocus, and when I show something on my screen, it like goes out of focus and then can't find my face again. Apparently. Oh, okay. Swear, <clears throat> swear engine. Got you. Yeah, I was like, yeah. uh, rotary engine, like inline engine, transverse engine, oh, square engine. Yeah. Got you. Yeah. Okay, well, that's cool. So any any crazy stories then other than flying stripper planes? <laughs> I don't think there were any strippers on the plane. Um, it was always Harry and his family um, or his managers. What? What do I have? Um, I've, I'm one of the only people in Las Vegas that is landed at every single airport in Las Vegas, including Nellis Air Force Base, which is not typically allowed by anybody other than the military. But I had an emergency. I had an electrical failure. And um, I landed without clearance onto the Air Force Base. Without clearance? Well, I didn't have any radios. I had a full-on electrical failure. Oh so, my God. yeah. What? And it was, um, it was about dusk and I was flying with a guy in his airplane. We were just doing some practice, um, instrument approaches, just like takeoffs and landings and, um, but by instruments only. And, uh, we're flying over Lake Mead. So that's like to the east of Vegas. And we're going underneath the flight path for all the big jets that are coming to McCarran. 
And all of a sudden I start to see some flickering happening on the avionics panel. And I'm thinking, okay, that's not good. And you know, the sun is just set. So there's still light out. But if you know about the desert at night, it just looks like a black void out in the mountains. So um, if our radios went out, then I still have to cross over Nellis Air Force Base and talk to them in order to get clearance to land at North Las Vegas, because that's just the vicinity of all the airports. And we hit, had to go back to North Las Vegas. So our radios ended up going out. And I was like, okay, well, if we went around their airspace so we don't talk to Nellis, which is what you would do during the daytime, it wouldn't be a big deal, except the other thing that you don't have when you have an electrical failure in a Cessna is your engine or your fuel gauge. So they both look oh. like they're at zero. So we don't know how much fuel we have nope. and it's getting dark and you can't see the terrain because it all turns black at night. Nope, and, I don't want anything um, to do with any of that. I'm not learning how to fly. I don't like that. <laughs> I know, I'm really scaring you out of it. Right. Uh, so the, and, and I'm writing notes on the iPad, showing them to, um, the guy, you know, and he's, I'm like, I'm going to troubleshoot you fly the airplane. So I sent him that note. So he's flying and I tell him where to go and, um, I'm pulling circuit breakers and, you know, trying to just like fix this and engine's still running fine. Um, so that's good, but the, uh, I couldn't get anything working. So, um, I wrote him a new note and I said, my controls, I'm landing at Nellis. And he just kind of gives me this look like, huh? And I was like, yeah, that's what we're going to do right now. So um, I landed at Nellis and um, without any lights, I did um, put my transponder. Uh oh, we lost Amingdon. And oh. Sorry, you just I come back? You, okay. you dipped out for a second. So I got you up to you. Uh, you turned on your transponder. I turned on my transponder and it pinged um, a, a certain code that says my radios don't work. Uh. So if I got any electrical power back, it would have hopefully um, sent that message out to you know uh, all the air traffic controllers. Um, so they knew that I wasn't just some terrorist landing at Nellis Air Force right, Base. Right, yeah. I mean, because that's the yeah. thing is they have no idea. They've just got an airplane no. just coming right into the base. They have no idea. So we landed um, and uh, I pulled off of the runway and I immediately opened the door and secured it. And I told um, the owner of the plane, I told him, do the same thing, open your door. And he's like fiddling with his bag, his flight bag, trying to get into stuff. And I'm like, dude, open the door and put your hands up on the dash while you're at it because <laughs> we're going to have a whole bunch of Air Force personnel like coming at us with guns and they need right. another person. So yeah. don't be down here not showing your face, <laughs> not showing your hands. And I finally like kind of kind of hit him on the arm like, come on, dude, you get your hands up and open your damn door. So he did that and he looked up and sure enough, we had a couple cars coming at us, um, a bunch of people walking towards us. They all had guns in hand and I was, you know, just like, hi guys, you know, just put on my, my <laughs> highest pitch voice I probably could do. They, um, they took us out of the plane. They, they dragged the plane uh, to a parking spot and then they took us both out, separated us and uh, interviewed both of us separately right. in two different rooms to make sure that our stories 
yeah. were the same and we had to make written statements. I was there for like two hours. Wow. But, that's crazy. It was cool. And they, they were fun. They were, they were all great. They were like, this is the most excitement we've had all month. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, cause that, that could have been real hairy had had they have been i don't know if there had been sort of a high alert at the time or anything like that and then you guys just come bombing in pitch black in an unknown airplane i mean they they obviously would have been able to see the tail number right so they could have done some research or is that not what would have happened definitely and i'm sure they did they probably looked up the tail number and saw that it was registered to him to the guy i was flying with and um and i'm sure that they were just like okay electrical fit. And sure enough, he brought his mechanic out, I think the following day. And it was, I want to say it was a voltage regulator that surged and it just completely fried all of the electrics. So, so they, the air force let you keep the plane there until you could fix it and and fly it out of there. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't take anything apart. Um, which I do know a guy that back in the, in the seventies is kind of one of those old airport uh, hangar rats is what they call them. Like the old guys that hang out at airports. <laughs> right. Um, he told a story about how he landed at area, area 51 one time and they did, they took his airplane completely apart and then like panel by panel and then Whoa. reassembled the whole thing. He didn't get his airplane back for like two months. Whoa. So, do you know, do you have any experience of area 51? Cause all I know of it is just obviously what you see in the movies and and the mm-hmm. little bits it are there aliens there are there really aliens in area 51 Heck yeah you think i i think so i've seen some weird stuff lying around i don't know have you what have you seen i've seen um i've seen lights uh you know like lights off in the distance that are um like in a sequence or in a pattern and then they just disappear uh-huh. um i've seen uh on my TCAS, which is like a traffic system, I've seen aircraft or something that shows that it would be an aircraft just shoot up a thousand, well, not a thousand, more like probably 5,000 feet a minute just up into oblivion and then disappear. Um, I've seen things from time to time. I mean, I've, gosh, I've been flying now for 14 years, so I've probably seen at least half a dozen things that I cannot explain at all. Well, cause, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Is that a UFO, unidentified flying object, right? It doesn't mean that it's a little green man in a in a spaceship. Like, it could be a military plane. It could be that kind of thing. But what's crazy is in the midst of all of this coronavirus stuff, NASA releases those videos and they're like, yep, the, this is these are UFOs, like, confirmed. We, we admit to it. Like, we don't know what these are. They don't behave like anything we know. And nobody said anything because everything else was going on at the time. How insane is that? Like, how insane is that people are so distracted that they didn't even pick up on the fact that NASA officially were like, yep, UFOs are real. Yeah, absolutely. And the, some, of, some of those those visuals, like uh, I remember listening to the Joe Rogan podcast and he had a, a pilot on there. And he, I think he was one of the guys that actually filmed one of the videos where they basically trace this like weird saucer thing that flies that way. So it, uh, for you guys that are listening, imagine like, so imagine making, putting, laying your hand flat with your palm to the ground. And it's this disc that instead of flying that way, kind of belly down, it flips up. So now your palm is facing forward and the, the disc flies forward 
forward. And that's been reported by a few people as well. There's that guy, again, I don't remember his name, that uh, worked at Area 51 that kind of came forward. And he said that he actually saw one in person, one of these craft that, that was like hovering and getting ready. I think he actually said he saw it take off. But I mean, Area 51 is not that far from North Las Vegas Airport, right? No, I don't think so. There's, um, I think it's like maybe three or four hours. Oh, oh, I didn't, I thought it was much closer. I didn't realize it was like three or four hours away. Like a drive, I think. I'm pretty sure. If you were to fly. Airplane, it's very, very far. Because, I mean, like, if you would take out take off out of North Las Vegas, like, if they're flying these spaceships around, how how controlled is the airspace around there? Like, how close can you get to it in just a, a regular Cessna or something? Um, well, the border that you're allowed is very far from the base. So um, all through, like, central, southern California and Nevada, there's a lot of military-restricted airspace. Um, so even when I fly to LA, I have to navigate around, I think three restricted airspaces. Really? From so Vegas to LA? I yeah. I can't just like shoot up and just go straight to LA. That doesn't, doesn't really work. Oh, interesting. Okay. I didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't realize that. I know that they've got that one out the back of, um, is it Lancaster? They've got like, yeah, the Edwards. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I like driving by there. You see all the the cool airplanes and stuff they have around. They don't they do like rockets and things from there as well. They do. There's a lot of testing out there. So rockets. They'll do speed tests on vehicles. They've got the boneyard for all the aircraft. So like when you're looking those uh, cool Google Earth images where you see all the airplanes like lined up nose to nose. Yeah. Those are all out of that area. Yeah, it's it's a cool spot. I, we we were filming an episode for NPM, one of the old shows that I used to work on, and. We drove by there and tried to sort of get in, have a look at, at, at the other side of the fence, obviously, and um, we we couldn't find any roads to to get close enough to it. But it was definitely cool driving by on the freeway and and seeing what goes on. And then, isn't there also one? I remember going on a hike up into the uh, Angeles Crest. No, not Angeles Crest. It was like the Santa Monica Mountains, so Malibu. Um, and there was a, I think that might have been someone like Lockheed or Boeing or something. They've got a test facility over there. Is that right? That I'm not sure of. I know that there is a home in Malibu that I used to fly over that took the wing of a 737 and made it their roof. Really? There is that house. That's yeah. Cool. I'm not sure of any testing facility. There, I might not be testing. It may just be like a, a private airport or airfield or something because i remember going to the top of this hike and when i got to the top there was like you know no trespassing and and it what i think it might have been boeing i think it might have been boeing and and there i saw this little road leading up and then they had a gatehouse and then i saw like one of the big radar um dome is it radar the the big domes like the the round domes that they have the radar. yeah yeah so there was one of those out there but it, it's cool I, I love that kind of stuff I, I really hope there are aliens. I do, because right now I think they'll be looking going, we want nothing to do with those guys. <laughs> yeah, I think they're delaying their um, their arrival. Their arrival sure. to the party. <laughs> do, do you think do you think there's aliens around us? Do you like do you think there are aliens amongst us? Yeah, why not? Absolutely. <laughs> do you, you don't have to say it to sensationalize the podcast. Like I No, I, no, like I mean, why wouldn't there be? There's all sorts of people around us you know um okay can we can we uh talk about tiger king i mean i can't believe that those people are around us 
This is true. I, I would be less <laughs> shocked, I think, if I came face to face with an alien than I would be if I came face to face with the Tiger King. The Tiger King people are probably all aliens themselves. Yeah. That's probably where all the aliens hang out. Elon is Musk Joey? is an alien. One one thousand percent Elon Musk is, is not not a real person. He is he is from a different planet or time yes. or something. So I mean I, I think if you've got if you've got people like that, if you've got spies around, if you've got, there's so many different types of, we're surrounded by so many different types. Why wouldn't we also throw aliens in the mix? Yeah. I mean, why not? Do you, do you think you know any? Have you got any friends that you look at and go, a bit weird, those, eye, those eyes are a bit odd? Yeah. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I wish I was an alien. I, w- I wish, I, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Hmm. Um, I would like to stay up. I'd like to stay awake. Like not need sleep. I'm not going to lie. It's a bit anticlimactic. You could fly, you could do anything. (laughs) You're like, no, just, I would never like to have to go to bed. (laughs) Um, I'll already fly. So I, I've got that. Um, the whole invisibility thing, I, I'm a big proponent of privacy, so I don't necessarily want to have the uh, the ability to in, impose on somebody's privacy. I don't, I don't I like do. that. That's exactly what I would have. I would be invisible. You would have invisibility? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, yeah, invisibility would be, would is high up there on my list for sure. Why do you not want to sleep? Because I love when um, I get so much done. And if there's one thing that my friends all tell me now is my superpower is sleeping. I can sleep anywhere, at any time, in any... The nickname uh, for me, for my friends, is Bernie from Weekend at Bernie's. Um, I have... It's it's a fantastic classic uh, of the 90s, I think. Um, but it's basically these two guys carrying around a dead guy and they're just like, oh yeah, he's, he's just tired. He's drunk. He's whatever. And they just continue to make excuses as they go walking around this resort. So, um, so I can, I can sleep like nobody's business and I, and when I get tired, um, I'm out. So I don't, uh, in fact, I've actually, (laughs) I've been concerned that I could be narcoleptic. I'm not. But it almost feels like I could be. So I would like the opposite of that. I would love to <laughs> just be awake, be able to do things. You can get so much done if you don't have to sleep. Right. And it's that's maybe it's anticlimactic to you, but to me, it, it would be very exciting. <laughs> just think of all the emails you could do. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. be doing emails, but... Okay, no, I I get that. I I appreciate that, but no, I'd still like to be invisible. Invisible, or I was I was gonna say I'd like to be able to hold my breath, like forever. I just wouldn't wouldn't need to breathe because I love I love diving and being under the water so much. But that still means I can be eaten by sharks, and so I think if I could pick like two superpowers, it would be being able to hold my breath and also being invisible, because then at least that way I could go like free diving and and go and hang out with all these cool things and they wouldn't even know i was there like so i wouldn't get eaten by a shark 
like can, it. Can you imagine getting like... How's the shark going to eat you if they can't see you? Right, exactly, exactly. Can you imagine mm-hmm. being eaten by a whale shark by accident, though? You're like, oh, wow, look at this beautiful whale shark. And then whomp, one just comes and gets you while you're invisible. He's like, oh, what was that? <laughs> that was a chunky bit of water. <laughs> so talk to me then as I see that watch glistening on your wrist. Talk to me a little bit about the Abingdon Co. Where did that all come from? Well, when I was uh, learning how to fly, so let's see, jump forward to 21. So um, several years after I took my first flight, um, I got my rating at Santa Monica Airport at American Flyers, and I wanted to gift myself with uh, a few things. Um, A good pilot always has a good pair of sunglasses, a good watch, and a good headset. Mm -hmm. Um, my, My mom had gotten me a headset so i already had that sunglasses i just i cannot buy an expensive pair i break them i lose them it's all the cheapies that i still have so i wasn't going to invest in a pair of sunnies so i said okay well i'm going to go look for a watch and i was 21 um just got my private started searching for female pilot watches online they didn't have anything uh, that was nothing. So I actually spoke to a company who's located in Beverly Hills, Chase Jura. Mm-hmm. They make um, uh, some pretty nice watches. And I was going to make a custom watch with them. They have a really nice watch called a, a Vintage Ladyhawk. And I was thinking, okay, this would be, if, if they could just tweak it a couple ways and turn it into an aviation style watch, mm-hmm. I would be all about it. So um, I was talking with them, and as I was working out the details with them, I was also a member of the 99s, and the 99s is a group of um, female pilots started by Amelia Earhart and 98 other women back in the day, uh, early 1900s. And so I've been a member of them since day one, and um, day one of my flying. And they, I asked, I asked uh, at a meeting, I said, hey, have you guys ever found a pilot's watch? And they're like, oh, yeah, no, they, we're too small of an industry. They'll never make anything for us. Um, we're only 6% of aviation's female pilots. And that's true. There's only about 50,000 female pilots in the United States. That's a small number. Wow, that's There's crazy, isn't it? That are bigger than that, right? So um, so we were talking about it, and, uh, and it just kind of got all of us thinking, and it got me thinking, I'm thinking, okay, if, if these women have wanted a watch, I've wanted a watch. There's obviously a demand for this. So I started putting pen to paper and um, drawing out some designs. Um, I ran them by the my, uh, my chapter, my 99s chapter. And we came up with the first two styles, the Amelia and the Jackie. And I found a manufacturer. Um, uh, let's see, that's, it's, one of them has a Swiss movement in it, the other one has a Japanese movement in it. Um, and uh, I launched the company 11 months later. So that's awesome. it's, it's been awesome ever since. And so how many models do you have now? So in a variety of colors, we have about uh, 150 SKUs. However, wow. um, that's made up of the five main models, which is Amelia, Jackie, the first two original, Elise, Catherine and Marina and then we've got two new ones that are not available yet but Jordan and Nadia Mm. and Nadia is available for pre-sale and Jordan is actually you're the first public entity I've told about Jordan so Mm. that's a new exclusive right here guys racing style yeah oh that's cool so um and that should be out this summer 
Okay, nice. And so you, you're wearing two right now. Which two are you wearing? I am wearing Catherine and I'm wearing Jackie. Nice. And that's not a marketing stunt, guys. Abingdon really does wear two watches at all times. All the time. She also has yeah. two on one on each ankle as well. I do. I do. <laughs> um, so what, what makes a woman's uh, aviator's watch? What's different between a woman's aviator's watch and a men's aviator's watch? Nothing other than color. Okay. Color and size. So you just um, go most... for... Go on. Sorry. No, no, go on. Um, most aviator watches have a rotating bezel that is... Uh, it's got calculations on it. Um, it can do time, speed, and distance calculations, fuel consumption, all those types of things. Most people who own an aviator's watch don't know what those things do. Right. Um, but when you get one of those watches, they're absolutely beautiful. They look very complicated. Breitling is a very common example of an aviation style watch. Um, but the size of the case, it's oftentimes a 45 millimeter or bigger case yeah. and for somebody who's five foot six 110 dripping wet that just looks like a grandfather clock hanging off my wrist <laughs> right for sure <laughs> i mean a 45 would look big on me like for 42 is the smallest i can get away with i think realist or not that i can get away with people on youtube always say oh you can wear smaller watches you just like big ugly ones i do but yeah so 45 is is huge yeah yeah and uh, so our um our smallest Flight computer watch is a 40 millimeter. Um, and then the jackie that I'm wearing is a 41.5. Mm -hmm. So this is the largest we'll ever go on a watch. Um, and then a lot of our watches are Zulu time or GMT or third time zone, second dual time. And that is all the way down to a 35 millimeter. So it's much more in the range of a woman's wrist size. Mm -hmm. um, and then color. I mean, the fact that like we've got, I've got a blue mother of pearl here. I've got a pink mother of pearl on this Jackie. Um, the mother of pearl is very feminine. It's very, very beautiful. And I've, I offer mother of pearl in every color of the rainbow. Um, there's Swarovski crystals, there's diamonds, there's feminine touches that turn an existing product into something that a woman can wear. Mm -hmm. um, I'm all about the boyfriend watch. The boyfriend watch is great and they do look good with a certain style. But if I'm going out on a date or if I'm getting dressed up for an event, then I want something that is going to match my dress. I want something that's going to match what I'm wearing. And it's very similar to how men wear watches. They wear watches to suit their attire suit their situation if they're walking into a boardroom if they're going to do a big sales pitch or if they're um you know going to the gym yeah so you have different watches for different situations uh women should have the same thing absolutely that's awesome and that's cool that you're branching out now from the aviators watches into driving watches you know racing watches that kind of thing do you oh, totally. do you think you'll go into diving watches and stuff like that as well well, I already have a dive watch out. We're coming out with our second dive watch. Oh, cool. Um, the Nadia. So Marina has been out for a while. Um, and I love that watch. It's one of the only dive watches that, oh, well, I haven't found another one in existence, but it also has a world timer on it. So you know how your world timer watches have the cities mm -hmm. around the bezel? Yep. When we're diving, we typically go to other places around the world. We go to the Red Sea, we go to Fiji, we go all over the place. Um, 
why not have a world timer that can tell you the time zone where you're located? So having dual time and the divers functions as well. So that's what Marina is. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. It, it's a, And that's great that if you want to just take one watch, if you're going to go somewhere, you go to Egypt, you go to the Red Sea to go diving, you don't want to take a load of watches because you're doing a liverboard or something like that. But you also want a watch that's going to look good when you go to dinner, you know, off the boat or something. Then, right. yeah, that's that's a great idea. That's that's cool. I love that type of innovation and finding. It's very rare, I think, these days to, to really find that niche in the market where there's this this product that doesn't exist and i guess you were your own customer and so that's great that you can build a product and say well look if there's one of me then there's there's going to be more like there's going to be more women out there that that want this yeah definitely yeah we've got customers in i think over 30 countries now um and uh the brand is building incredibly large i'm I do my my lofty goal is to make this completely as household of a name as Chanel or Louis Vuitton or one of those brands. But with watches, oftentimes a woman's style that's introduced by a brand is an afterthought. Um, there's a term out there called pink it and shrink it. You ever heard that before? I haven't, no, but that's amazing. It's You're so right. Yeah, it's like Rolex are like, oh, yeah, we'll just make this one smaller and put some different colors on it, and great. There we go, woman's watch. Exactly. So um, I'm trying to make it so that women are definitely not the afterthought, that we are the forethought. Um, it's designed, all of the styles have been designed by professionals in their fields. So just like the 99s helped me design the first two aviation styles, I had the Women Divers Hall of Fame help me design the Nadia. Um, I had a, a group of dive professionals help me de design the Marina. Same thing with Jordan, racing professionals. Uh, it's just, if, if women are going to use this as they are intended to be used, I want them to be designing them. So we're not doing in-house design in that way. Um, my crew and I are more focused on customer service and building the brand. Yep. But whenever it comes to a watch design, uh, I reach out to my customer base and I reach out to professionals in a various field. Yeah, real, real world crowdsource design. Mm -hmm. yeah. But on a very private level. So there NDAs signed, no pictures, but test the watch out for a month. Tell me what your feedback is and we'll incorporate those changes. Absolutely. That, that's phenomenal. And that's such a, an exciting way to go with a, with a business as well to, to do that where obviously that companies do... Um, focus groups and they'll come out with a, a product and then put it in front of a hundred randoms in a room and oh, what do you think of this like fill out this questionnaire but the fact that you're actually going to professionals and you're going to the top tier of the people within the industry that you're looking to target that's brilliant that's that's so exciting and yeah i'm, I, I'm stoked for you i hope that it it does become as much of a brand name as chanel and and whatnot in fact maybe and if shaz if you're listening that's my mum. if you're listening stop listening now maybe i'll get a one for christmas or something we'll, we'll get her a nice watch um yeah that's that's awesome and you've just launched a youtube channel as well yes um, and like I said, it was per yours and Michael's inspiration. Uh, so thank you. That was, that was as much yours as mine. Of course, of course. No, I mean, I, I think YouTube's great. It's, it's amazing now that we have this free platform that we can do stuff like this. We can do podcasts, we can do videos, we can stream computer games, like whatever you want to do. There's, there's no, no longer is there that 
fat cat executive that you've got to go in and get his sign off before you can get yourself out there. So now I think I think it's really exciting that you've done YouTube and you have such amazing access as well to these incredible women. So tell me a little bit about your episodes. Obviously, I've seen I've seen episode one. I didn't see the one you put out today yet, um, but I've saw the first one, uh, which was the NASCAR uh, episode. So what else have you got coming up? So uh, we've got, um, so today's episode is actually, it's kind of a bit of an experiment. I'm really, really excited about this, um, but it's going to be completely different than the NASCAR episode. And uh, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm literally reading a story. I'm reading a small, like a, a short story about a woman who's a pathologist. And what she does is she takes animal carcasses and um, discovers why or how a virus uh, came about very very pro- relevant to COVID nineteen. Okay. So that's um, that's today's story. And the interesting thing about it is, and I've scoured YouTube all over the place. The only time you ever hear stories um, that are being read are either a children's story, which there's some really funny Betty White videos reading children's stories, um, or ASMR. And um, that's more for like sensory titillation type of thing. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that is just a story that's read. And I love to read biographies and learn from other people's successes and how they got to where they got to. And this book that I have, it's called Women's Work. Um, I'm actually in the book. It's being done. It was done by a photographer named Chris Christman. And he um, did a book that was based off of all of his photography of the women that he has photographed over the years. And, uh, and he compiled this book and got all of our stories. So each story is only one to two pages in the book, but there's over 50 different stories. So I'm not reading my story on the channel, but I'm reading everybody else's story and I'm doing them one at a time. So there's everything from a pig farmer to a firefighter to a DJ to uh, a chemical by, you know, a chemical scientist type thing. Mm-hmm. And they, they're super motivating. They're super inspiring. Um, but it's, it's very different because nothing like this has been done to my knowledge. And I've been looking for months for these types of things. But I think a lot of times with um, any of the media that we're being exposed to, the constant desire to be stimulated, like second after second after second, uh, our attention spans have gone down over the years. You know, we're only, it's like, if you don't capture me in the first 1.8 seconds, I'm out. Yeah. If that web page doesn't load, I'm out. If it has too slow of a start, I'm out. And I think a lot of times, and especially one of the, probably the benefits of COVID-19 is that we all were forced to take a break as a society. And um, there's a there's a good place for that. So this video that launched today is one of those stories. And it's just one of those things where you can kick back, relax, and hear a super motivating, inspiring story of a woman that's in a field not normally accessed by women. So every other week is going to be one of those stories. Um, but we've got the NASCAR video was just uh, phenomenal. It had such a phenomenal reach. Um, we went back behind the scenes with Natalie Decker and she races in the truck series. Um, she's the top woman, uh, top finishing female in truck racing. So she kind of holds a record and it's cause she placed fifth at Daytona. Um, wow. and that was pretty unreal. So good, good on her. She's kicking ass. Uh, then we've got, um, videos on base jumping with Claire Marie, who is known as the base girl on Instagram. 
she's one of the youngest base jumpers. I think she holds the record for the youngest base jumper in the world. Uh, I want to say she started when she was 15 or 16. Whoa, that's crazy. Super crazy. And then uh, I'm doing some aerobatic flying with Tommy Soul and his three daughters. Um, he races at Reno. I mentioned him earlier. Um, we're going to come out to Catalina and dive the kelp forests, which I got more details on that that you and I need to speak about. Wait, have you filmed that yet or not? Not yet. <gasps> not yet. So Okay. We yeah. do need to talk about that. Yes, we do. Okay. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and so I'm, I'm doing some corporate flying. Uh, we're doing some airline stuff. We're doing um, some drag racing. Uh, we've got um, scuba diving in Lake Mead. We've got uh, film directing. Um, let's see, what else? Gosh, uh, there are so many different types of episodes. And yeah. it's super, super fun. And that's most of amazing. them are my customers. Right. So that's the fun part. I mean, for you guys at home listening, Abingdon came to me with the the idea of starting a YouTube channel and I was like yeah absolutely you should do it uh, I said make sure you go out and film a bit of content just as a buffer like I started with I think I had four or five episodes in the bag before I started and she's like okay cool and then off she went and the next time I talked to her she's like all right cool so we've got it was a ridiculous amount like 15 or something episodes that you had in the bag and you'd done all of these crazy things and I was like wait what how how have you done this in in what seemed like a month or two and you had just gone and done so much stuff I was blown away by it nice well I, I listen to instruction very well so apparently um, so yeah and well, go above and beyond <laughs> well that's cool I, I'll definitely listen to uh to the the one that you or watch the one that you put out today listen to the story so what is it is it you sat in an armchair with a pipe in front of a fire like let me tell you a story <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> nice. I got a cup of tea. <laughs> I'll, I'll check that out. And, and how's the channel going? Are you are you gaining subscribers? Are you getting good oh, interaction? Brilliantly. Um, the trailer, we released a trailer a few weeks before we launched the channel, and that was super helpful. It gave people an idea of what, what they were going to be seeing. Yeah. Um, uh, we've been increasing um, about 200 subscribers a week, and uh, that's pretty good for a channel that's basically non-existent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, yeah, we're we're waking, making our way up. So the first video, Natalie's video, uh, even this morning, it was over a hundred views in the last forty-eight hours. So it's still being watched. In yeah. fact, if you search Natalie Decker on YouTube, we're the first video that's not from her channel. That's awesome. Um, but we're the first video that's showing. So that's cool. It's been great. How many views has it got now? Do you know? Uh, we're over a thousand. Wow. I know that. I mean that that's a real milestone to to hit that first thousand on your first video. That's a that's something to be celebrated. Um, and you guys, I will link it in the description on both the podcast and on the YouTube video if you're watching that. Uh, but if people want to want to find it, then they just go to youtube.com forward slash Abingdon Co. Forward slash Abingdon Co. Um, yeah, go check it out and and drop a little subscribe there um yeah that's 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 really cool and so uh, you've got a load of stuff in the bag but you're constantly adding more more episodes uh, are you looking for for new content all the time definitely we have episodes already queued up through november november wow i huh? haven't even got one for next tuesday <laughs> <laughs> that, that is then, insane 
Yeah. So, and then we've got, we've got, um, several episodes that are, uh, we're still working out the logistics on when to film and just all that stuff. So we're still doing, we're still filming about four episodes a month. Mm-hmm. Um, but we gave quite a large buffer and, uh, we'll, we'll definitely, we're, the entire team is committed to 52 episodes. So definitely one year mm-hmm. of constant contact content. Um, and then uh, we'll just see how it grows from there. Wow, that's amazing. And so just give me like a little, little tiny bit of info about this kelp diving. So um, we're going to be going in October. That's the best visibility. Ooh, chilly. Okay, that's fine. I can it's deal with that. It's going to be chilly. We're a seven um, And uh, let's see, what else? Um, the whole thing is maybe going to cost 150 bucks. So okay. it's pretty expensive. I'm in. I'm in. Yep. And, uh, and that even covers all your gear except for gloves and booties. So I'm going to try and get dry suit certified before October so okay. I can go in a dry suit. Okay. Cause my, my wetsuit is a, is a five mil with a seven mil core. Mm-hmm. And though I, if they said that would be okay, I'm kind of like, eh, I want to be on the warmer side. So I'm going to try and do the dry suit course here in Lake Mead. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so mark off October. Mm, okay. All right. I will. I definitely will. Uh, is it a one day trip? Are you camping? Are we staying? Are we, were we going to Luau Larry's? What's going on? Oh man, I haven't even thought that far in advance, but yes, let's do all of that. That sounds great. Perfect. No, we, we have to. I, I love Catalina. When, did you see the episode where I went on the electric mm-hmm. bikes? Yeah. I, I swear to God, I now when I'm riding along the beach or I'm, I'm at the beach and you can see Catalina off in the distance, I feel like an astronaut looking at the moon and going, I once stepped foot on that. I was I was there. <laughs> once, once upon a time, I was there. It, it was just such an incredible experience. And I think because I'd been to Catalina before just for a day trip for my mate's birthday. And, and we went over there and we went had some drinks and I went snorkeling just around the in one of the beaches, one of the beach clubs down there. And it was great. I had a good time. We went back. But this time doing going through the interior and going to the other side to two harbors on those electric bikes it was honestly it was like life-changing and that sounds very big and splendid but it really was because you're not far at all from california from la right that you could get from downtown la to set foot on catalina island in like i don't know probably four hours or something three hours it's really not far to do that that trip the boat ride over there takes an hour hour and a half but when you get there it kind of it feels a little bit familiar you know like okay cool this is just like another little beach town but then when you start riding through the middle there's nothing there there's like a few ranches and people live out there and then when you get even further i guess uh north then it, it turns to absolutely nothing and then there's a few campsites and then there's just wild buffalo just running around the place and yeah. then two harbors is unbelievable because there's there's i don't know what the population of two harbors is but it's not a lot and the ocean is just looks like something from the caribbean it's so clear it's crystal clear there's like these little beach shacks and honestly i sat on the dock there and when when we rode there to get some lunch i sat on the dock and i was just looking around and i was like i could i could quite happily just run away here and just have my days be going in the water and going snorkeling and scuba diving and hiking up into the hills it was it was amazing I, I can't speak highly enough catalina and i think if you'd go there if you do go on a trip to catalina 
then you should definitely hike through the interior or mountain bike or electric bikes are difficult you have to ship the batteries in separately because they won't let you put them on the ferry so if you've got your own ferry uh, your own boat then great but if uh, if you're going over on the catalina flyer then you have to ship the battery separately uh which is what we did but yeah just unbelievable just such an amazing experience so a thousand percent count me in uh that would be that'd be great i know i might be the only boy on the trip but whatever i'll i'll wear a dress you know what we could do we could fly to catalina because they have a little airport at the top they do have a little airport at the top that we could find it in a flight lesson hmm okay that that sounds like a can i film it can we do that as an episode like flying to catalina and then going scuba diving i think that'd be a great yeah great idea okay i'm i'm in text me text me the date and i will lock it off right now for sure that sounds amazing all right cool well look that's been an hour and 40 minutes so that was uh that was a, a long one and it's been so nice to talk to you and hear some stories that even i didn't know and uh, i hope the audience has enjoyed it as well so thank you so much for coming on thank you for having me it's been fun uh so guys make sure that you check out all of abingdon's endeavors i will leave a link below in the description uh to her instagram to the website to the youtube channel to all of that stuff i would really appreciate it if you would go and support her because she is an absolute badass uh, and it's a pleasure to call you my friend and i'm really glad that we uh we met on that horrific flight with michael blakey (laughs) (laughs) but yeah guys (laughs) thank you thank you for watching thank you for listening i appreciate you share this with your friends if you like it um if you're watching on youtube give it a thumbs up that really helps and subscribe because i would love to see you here again um and do you know what the sign off is abingdon no i thought you said you watched the videos i have shocking shocking still go and show her support even though she doesn't know what my sign off is anyway guys remember until (laughs) next time (laughs) (laughs) Don't do anything I wouldn't do. See ya.